Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Well, as you know, here in the month of December and this year, we've been kind of looking into the doctrine of eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things. And to really cover the doctrine of eschatology fully would require several months of Sundays. But that's not been my aim. My aim has not been to try to cover it uh, fully or exhaustively. My goal has been basically to lay a simple foundation for this doctrine so that we can have a collective understanding about certain aspects of it before we launch into Revelation chapter 4 on Sunday, January the 14th. Just by way of quick review on the first Sunday, the first Sunday of December, the first Sunday of this series, I gave a brief overview of covenantalism and dispensationalism, specific to their practice of biblical interpretation and their basic understanding of the church and of Israel. And I explained to you that depending on which way you go with that, it is going to impact the destination that you arrive at as it relates to your understanding of last things. Last week, using the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation, we unpacked Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, also known as Daniel's 70 weeks, which demonstrated three points that I want to review right now. Number one, we, we, we take from that passage that God has a plan for Israel. He is not finished with them yet, and that plan moves right into the millennial kingdom, which is yet future. Secondly, we discovered that Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy has messianic significance foretelling the coming and the sacrifice of the Messiah in very brief, uh, very opaque way, but nonetheless, it is there. And then we also discovered that Daniel's 70 week prophecy has eschatological significance foretelling of a time of trial and tribulation for the whole world, but specifically also for Israel. This time of tribulation is still yet future. It is commonly referred to as Daniel's 70th week. So Daniel chapter 9 is really an important uh, passage of Scripture. It's a, it's a key uh, for a foundational understanding of end-time events, events that we will encounter as we make our way through the book of Revelation in 2024. So today I want to call our attention to a teaching that is controversial in some circles. It's not controversial with me, it's probably not controversial with our church, but it is in different circles, and that is the teaching on the rapture. The rapture, that's what we're talking about today. And as we talk about the rapture, I've got four points that I want to cover. I want to, first of all, ask the question, what is it? I want to define it. What is it? And then we want to ask the question, is it scriptural? Does the Bible actually teach the rapture of the church? Some say yes, some say no. So what does the Bible say? What can we glean from that today? We want to also ask the question, when will it occur does it happen before or after the tribulation? And finally, and I think very importantly, what impact should it have on our everyday life 
as followers of Jesus. We begin with the word rapture itself. The word rapture is not found in the Bible. We talk about that a lot, but it's not there. But hey, for that matter, neither is the word trinity. That's not there either. But as we study the scripture, we find that both of those realities are presented and presented in a pretty clear way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17 is the seminal passage pertaining to the teaching of the rapture. And so I just want to read those two verses. We're going to read a lot of others, but I want to read those two to get us started here today. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So it's those two words that we find there in verse 17 that will help us to define what this issue of rapture is. The two words are caught up. Those words are translated from the Greek harpazo, which means to snatch away or to seize. To snatch away or to seize. Now, I told you that the word rapture, the English word rapture, is not in our English Bible. If you were reading a Latin Bible, you would find the derivative of that word. In the Latin Bible, we find raptus or rapturo, which carries that exact same meaning, to be taken by force. It's not something you submit to. It's not something you volunteer for. If you're appointed to it, it's just something that comes upon you and it happens and it happens very quickly and decisively. Now when you take that right there, the understanding of that passage, verse 17, and what that word is meaning to us, and you couple it with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 54, which I don't have time to read today, but if you take those two together, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives detail concerning the transformation of one's body from mortal to immortal when the rapture occurs, then you arrive at this three-part truth point. And here we go. Truth point number one. The rapture is an eschatological event where Jesus descends from heaven in the clouds to resurrect, to reunite, and glorify make immortal the bodies of the dead in Christ with their soul spirit to bring that reuniting of the soul and spirit and a transformed body together soul and spirit that has been with him in heaven since that person passed away so that's the first part of the definition part two those in Christ who are alive at the time that this happens will be taken up from the earth their bodies will be glorified, transformed, made immortal. And together then, with the resurrected dead, we will meet the Lord in the air and then be transported to the splendor of heaven. Part three, 
Titus chapter 2 verse 13 informs us that this event is referred to as the blessed hope of those whose faith is in Christ. So in a very short, concise way, that's what the rapture is. The rapture is the resurrection, the reuniting, the glorifying of the, the body that has died with the soul and spirit that has been with the Lord since that person died, bringing, them, bringing that together and making them whole once again. It is taking those who are alive at the moment that the rapture happens and bringing them from the earth, transforming them in that moment so that their bodies are glorified and then meeting the Lord in the air together as a community of faith and then going with him into heaven. That is what the rapture is. Now we need to ask the question, is the rapture biblical? Is that something that the Bible actually teaches? Now, there is really no disagreement among serious students of Scripture that Christ promised to return. It's very clear. The Bible's very clear that Christ, Christ promised to return. And so the idea that Jesus will come again really is not disputed. All right? It's really not disputed. But there is something about it that is disputed. And what is disputed is whether or not his second coming, his coming again, has two or one part to it. Is it come in two parts or is there just one part? And so I want us then uh, to consider the return of Christ, the part of the return of Christ that finds little to no pushback, and that is commonly referred to as the second coming. I think I put these references in your note guide, but Matthew chapter 24, verses 39, 29 through 31, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, all of those scriptures and many others that we could bring forward shine light on this specific manifestation of Christ that is yet to come. It's known as the second coming. Truth point number two. In both the Old and New Testament, the second coming of Christ is known as the day of the Lord. The second coming is also known as the day of the Lord. It is not a happy day, the day of the Lord, because it is a day of judgment. It is a day of the outpouring of God's wrath. It is a time when the nations of the earth will literally tremble at his coming because they will see him. They will actually see him as he comes. The scripture points to the day of the Lord occurring at the end of the period that is known as the Great Tribulation. And so that's really a part, uh, that is the part of the, second, the, the, the coming of Christ, which is known as the second coming, the day of the Lord, that really has little to no pushback. People see that, they understand that, they grasp that, even if they don't agree about many other things. But in addition to those scriptures that I just identified to you, 
There are many other passages of Scripture that speak to a coming of Jesus that is not cast in the light of the day of the Lord, but rather is cast in the light of being a time to be anticipated with great enthusiasm. And one of those passages of Scripture that does that is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. Before we actually read those verses, I want to put that, uh, the verses we're going to read in their context. John 14 comes, uh, the context of John 14 is John 13, which is John's account of Jesus' Passover celebration in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. And while they're there in the upper room, Jesus, as you well know, instituted the bread and cup of communion. It was while they were there that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It is there that he confronted Judas with his plan to betray him. And it is there in the upper room that Jesus reveals to the disciples that he's going to be leaving them. He's going to be leaving them. And where he's going, they cannot follow at that particular time. And this filled them with a lot of anxiety. Because you see, just days before, Jesus rode into Jerusalem being hailed as the king, as the Messiah, as the one that Israel had long been waiting for. And you got to know his disciples were excessively excited. Because what does that mean? It means that the Messiah is going to institute the kingdom we've been waiting for. And so they're excited about that. This is going to be awesome. Only to celebrate the Passover and to have him say, I'm about to leave. What? Leave? You can't leave. We're going to establish the kingdom together. You can't go. But he tells them he's going to be departing. And as you can imagine, that then fills their hearts with anxiety. And so, chapter 14, verse 1, we find that Jesus says to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, notice, I will come again. So he's talking there about coming a second time. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, if you compare this passage with the other passages that speak of the day of the Lord, you will find that they uh, reveal a very huge difference in what they communicate. The day of the Lord passages speak of judgment, of wrath, of death. This passage and others like it speak of a welcomed and joyful ingathering of Christ followers to Jesus himself. 
And so I believe that when we take that into consideration, it certainly suggests that the second coming of Christ or the day of the Lord is not the only coming of Christ. There is another promised coming, and its purpose is the opposite of coming in judgment. Now, we've already looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17, uh, is it 16 and 17? 16 and 17, I believe. But I want to go back there again, and I want to take you through several more passages. So we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. And ultimately, we're going to go through to chapter 5, verse 11. And as we do this, I think what we're going to discover, I certainly discovered it, that in this one passage of Scripture, you find the two comings of Christ being revealed that I've just alluded to in the opening here of the message. And I want to carry you through that so that you can see it as well. So let's begin with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul is the one who is speaking, and he's talking to the believers in Thessalonica. And he says, But we, that is, we, myself, and other leaders, we do not want you, the saints in Thessalonica, to be uninformed about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for death. He's talking about saints who have died. And we do not want you to be uninformed about them, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The Thessalonian believers were fully aware of a promised second advent. They were fully aware of a promise that Christ would return. And their belief was that his return was imminent, meaning that it could happen at any time, that there was nothing that had to be fulfilled before he would come. Their concern about their deceased fellow believers is testimony about that belief that they saw the coming of Christ as being imminent because if they did not believe that Christ's return was imminent, then there would not have been great concern that their deceased family and friends would somehow miss out if Christ returned soon. But their understanding of this Second Advent, this coming of Christ, was focused on that final cataclysmic return where Christ's enemies would be vanquished and his kingdom would be established. And we'll see that in just a moment as we go into chapter 5. What I want to communicate here is that they knew nothing of a return of Christ to resurrect deceased believers and to gather those living to himself. They knew nothing about that. They only knew about the day of the Lord. Paul goes on, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Paul states that in this particular coming that he's talking about with them right now, that Jesus will bring with him when he comes, 
He will bring with him the soul spirit of those who have died. So I want you to try to imagine that. Jesus leaves heaven. He's returning toward the earth. And he has in tow the soul spirit of every single person who died in him, who died saved, who died redeemed. He has them with him. Now, why would he do that? Well, he would do that because this particular coming that Paul is talking about in chapter 4 is about a reuniting of soul and spirit with a resurrected, glorified body. So Jesus has these souls and these spirits of the people who have died. He's going to resurrect those bodies. He's going to transform those bodies into immortal bodies. And he's going to bring them back together and they will be whole again. That's what he's doing here in chapter 4 that Paul is bringing to their attention. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. So whatever this coming is that Paul is talking to them about, it's clear that there is a plan. There is a plan that's going to be carried out. There is an orderly way in which it's going to be carried out. We see that as we continue in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There's the first step. Then we who are alive, those who are in Christ, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So here we discover that this coming that he's talking about in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians is quite different from the day of the Lord coming, where Jesus returns to the earth to do battle. That's what the day of the Lord coming is all about, to judge between nations. That's what the day of the Lord coming is all about, to establish a kingdom. That's what the day of the Lord coming is all about. But this coming is only a partial coming. In other words, Jesus is only coming to the clouds. He's not coming to the earth. He's not going to stand on the earth. He's not coming with armies to make right what is wrong. He's coming in the clouds to gather to himself those who are in him, those who are saved, both those who have died and those who are still alive. And we close out verse 17 and 18 with these words. And so, Paul says, we, the saints, will always be with the Lord. Therefore... Encourage one another with these words. The whole point of Paul addressing the Thessalonian believers with the things he's talking to them about in chapter 4 is to bring encouragement to them. To bring encouragement to them. And when the Lord comes, he will take both those who have died and those who are still living, and he's going to bring them to himself, and he's going to make them whole just as has been promised. Now, what we have just read in chapter 4 was new revelation 
to the Thessalonian believers. A return of Christ for judgment and for kingdom establishment, that was not new. They knew about that. But a return of Christ to gather both the redeemed, dead, and living to himself to fulfill the promise made in John 14, 1 through 3, that was new. That was brand new. And not only that, it was a reason to be encouraged of what the Lord was going to do in relation to his saints. By the way, did you notice as we went through those verses, the focus of these verses, how they were focused exclusively on the believer? The words we and you were used repeatedly in the context of the believing community. So all those things that we just read and looked at, that's about the believing community and only the believing community, both those who have died and those who are still alive when the event occurs. Now as we transition to chapter 5, there is a total change of topic. This is not necessarily a continuation. There is a change of focus here. Whereas the previous focus was on the glorious ingathering of the saints to Christ, now the focus is on judgment. It is on the day of the Lord. The pronouns we and you are still going to be used because Paul is continuing to talk to the saints. But there's a noticeable shift here in these verses to the word them. Not referring to the believing community, but to the unredeemed. Pertaining then to the day of the Lord, or also what is known as the second coming. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So what we discover there is that this teaching about the day of the Lord, the second coming, about judgment and all of that, that was well-established teaching. He's telling them, I don't need to tell you any about this. You already know this. And now he says in verse 3, While people, not referring to the believing community, but to the unredeemed, while people are saying... There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So this coming of the Lord that we see in chapter 5 is not about ingathering. It's not about resurrection. It's not about reuniting. It's about judgment. And destruction that will fall on those who do not belong to Christ. And what he's referring to there is what we find revealed for us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. That's the relevance of this as we're trying to prepare for the remainder of the book of Revelation. And when we get there, we'll take plenty of time to go through all of that. But that's what he's referring to there as it relates to the day of the Lord. Verse 4, But you, referring now to the saints, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Verse 8, 
But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For, notice this, for God has not destined us, the believing community, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we be awake or asleep, whether we be alive or dead, as far as our body is concerned, we might live with him. Verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So what I find here is that both events, the coming of the Lord that Paul explained to them in chapter 4, the coming of the Lord that he had already explained to them in chapter 5, as it relates to believers, the truth of those comings should be a comfort to the believer. One of those comings is all about Resurrection, reuniting, being with the Lord forever. The other coming is about judgment, but not judgment upon the believer, but judgment upon the unbelieving world. Truth point number three. There will be a coming of Christ to gather his own to himself, both those living and those who have died. This is what is referred to as the rapture. And part two, there is a coming of Christ to bring judgment and destruction on the unredeemed world. A coming that has no impact on the redeemed because they are now with the Lord. This is referred to in scripture as the day of the Lord or what is also called the second coming. So. As it relates to, is the rapture a biblical teaching? I believe that it is. I believe that have clearly demonstrated that it is. I want you to know I've only barely, and I mean barely, scratched the surface of biblical evidence that points to these two comings of Christ. But I'm not going to go any further because my brain wouldn't allow it, my back wouldn't allow it, and you wouldn't allow it. We'll get that at some other time. But I believe the point is made that Scripture speaks of two comings or two returns of Christ. Just to make the summary before we move on, number one, a secret or partial coming in the clouds to resurrect the dead in Christ, to catch away those who are living, who are in Christ, thus fulfilling his promise to return that he made to his apostles. And number two, a public coming in glory and power with his resurrected, raptured saints where every eye is going to behold him and he comes to destroy the kingdom of Satan, slaying those who take a stand against him and then establishing his millennial kingdom on earth. So, what is the rapture? We've talked about that. Is it a biblical teaching? I believe we've demonstrated that. We come then to the question, when does the rapture occur? I've got to turn this way just a little bit, but I dare not twist to do it. <laughs> when does it recur? How many people throughout history 
have believed that they have calculated it down and they know at least the year. Others are brave enough to say they know the month and some of them are even possessed to say they know the day. And how many of those have been proven false? Uh-huh. Every single one of them. So when I pose the question, uh, when does the rapture occur, I am not, say not with me, I'm not referring to a year or a month or a day. Because Jesus made it abundantly clear that we are not to do that. We are not to speculate about that. And we are not to be date setters. And so we are certainly not going to do that. But if you want to know, Matthew 24, 36 is where Jesus makes it clear that no one knows the day or the hour. So when I talk about or ask the question, when does the rapture occur? I'm referring to, to the rapture in relation to the tribulation period. Does it precede the seven-year tribulation that we're going to be going through when we hit chapter 6 specifically of Revelation and through chapter 19? Or does it come after all of that? Well, we know this, and there's very little to no pushback on it. We know that the day of the Lord is going to occur at the end of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 19 uh, puts the day of the Lord uh, as the actual cataclysmic conclusion of the great tribulation. So we know when that coming is going to happen. The question then is, is this other coming, this rapture coming, does it happen alongside of the day of the Lord or does it occur at another time? Well, I believe the scripture points us to the fact that the rapture takes place just before the start of the tribulation. I believe that that's what scripture teaches us. I'll go so far as to say that I believe it's what will kick it off, that it will have a lot to do with things beginning to move quickly toward what we will find in Revelation chapter 6 verses, uh, chapter six through chapter 19. You say, Pastor Mike, why do you believe that? What, what clues do you have that you could share? Well, there are three. Number one, I believe it, it happens at the beginning because Scripture teaches that the redeemed are not the focus of God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 5.9, Romans 5.9. The church, which is the collection of believers in Jesus Christ, are not the focus of God's wrath. And why is the church exempt from God's wrath? Is it because we're so holy? Is it because we are so righteous in and of ourselves? Absolutely not. Truth point number four. God's wrath for sin will not fall on the church, those in Christ, because He, that is Christ, absorbed the full onslaught of God's wrath for sin, paying the debt and exhausting God's righteous judgment for those whom he saves. 
We are not going to face the wrath of God because Jesus did that for us. He took it in full on the cross. And so when we are placed in Him, then we are safe in Him because He's already dealt with the issue. The day of the Lord is not about the saint. And that should encourage us. It should encourage us profoundly. However, I want to make something abundantly clear here this morning. And I want to ask everyone to listen really carefully. The fact that the church will not face the wrath of God being poured out during the tribulation period in no way protects us from the wrath of unredeemed men or the wrath of Satan. This concept of the rapture being taken out before the tribulation begins only covers us as it relates to the wrath of God being poured out on the unbelieving world. It does not, it will not protect you from sinful humanity who are enraged about whatever. It will not protect you from the wrath of Satan that may come upon us. And I want to say that those who are counting, and I think there are many, on the rapture to keep them from suffering, you are grossly mistaken. You are grossly mistaken. Jesus made it abundantly clear that there will be persecution and there will even be martyrdom for some. Something we know almost nothing about in the United States of America. And there are other countries like us. They know very little to nothing about that. But there are a lot of other countries and billions of people who know very well what it means to suffer for the cause of Christ and even be put to death because of their faith in Jesus. And I want to say this, which I believe hones this down a little bit more. There is no special dispensation for the United States of America. Let us be abundantly clear. I pray that what I'm about to say does not happen. I pray it doesn't. I don't want it to happen. You don't want it to happen. None of us want it to happen. But we have to face the fact, church, that when it comes to this issue of eschatology, what is going to happen in the future? We have to face the fact that our country may very well crumble and fall because of our sin. We need to face the fact that our country may very well crumble and fall because of those who hate us and want to see us destroyed. And the point that I want to make is, we, right here in this room, some of us may have to live through that. So if you're thinking that the rapture is going to take you out of that and you don't have to face that, you are seriously mistaken. Because there is no special dispensation for the United States. None. Now I pray that those things never happen. 
But we need to understand that they could. But here's the good news. Even though we might have to deal with the wrath of Satan or the wrath of unredeemed humanity, even though we might have to suffer through the nation that we love and cherish and the freedoms that we have being taken away, we might have to live through that, but we will not have to live through the tribulation that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. Because God's wrath that is spelled out there in those chapters is for the unredeemed, not for the redeemed. So one of the reasons that I believe that the rapture is going to happen before the beginning of the tribulation is because the church is not destined for the wrath of God, which is what the tribulation period is about. Number two, there is no mention of the church in Revelation chapters 4 through 19, which is the tribulation period. No mention of the church whatsoever. The word ecclesia, translated church, is found 19 times in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation. It's over and over and over again. But as soon as you hit chapter 4, it goes away, and you don't see that word appear again until Revelation twenty-two sixteen. and by that time, the tribulation period is over. And that idea right there corresponds with what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Let's review that. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Hmm. Now, rightfully so. Some of you are saying, uh, hold the phone, Pastor Mike. Um, that's a promise made to the saints in Philadelphia, not to us. And you're right, to a point. But there are two factors that I think we have to take into consideration that I believe puts us in with that church. The first consideration is this. Church of Philadelphia, which we studied just a little while back, in the first century A.D. was never, ever in any danger of facing the trial that Jesus is speaking of. They never were. They were never in danger of going through the tribulation period, which I believe then says to us, that the statement Jesus made to them had to be broader than just that one specific church. Number two, although the seven churches of Revelation were actually individual churches, and Jesus spoke directly to them, the things that Jesus said about them and to them are applicable to the whole body of Christ. And the things that we find in those letters to those seven churches describe both the good and the bad of the church throughout the age of grace. And so the absence of the church 
in Revelation chapter 4 through verse 9, uh, chapter 19, I believe speaks to its removal before that time. Number three, if the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, all of the redeemed would have glorified bodies. And there would not be anyone left in natural bodies to enter and repopulate the millennial kingdom. Now, I would love nothing more than to pull up a chair and spend the next hour and a half talking about that. But we can't do that. So I'm, not even, I'm just going to leave you with that. And you're going to go, what? But when we get to Revelation 20, we'll pull up the chair and we'll take all the time we need to understand what that statement is saying. But for now, just understand that there have to be um, people who are saved still in their natural body going into the millennial kingdom. And if, 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 if the rapture and all that happened at the end of the tribulation, then that wouldn't be possible. So anyway, I believe that these point us to the rapture of the saints of Christ being taken out of the world before the beginning of the tribulation and not at the end. We come then to what I believe perhaps is the most important point of the day. And that is, what is or should be the daily impact of the knowledge of this thing called the rapture? Let's look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, God and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The blessed hope, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 13, speaks of our waiting, of the church's waiting for his coming. And it speaks there that during the period of time that we wait, the grace of God that is bringing salvation, verse 11, should be accomplishing some things. It should be accomplishing both negative and positive changes in the life of the believer. Negative things that should be stopping, positive things that should be growing. And verse 12 tells us about both. Verse 12 says, training us to renounce, which means to relinquish, to reject, to quit, ungodliness, and worldly passions. Those are the negative things that should be taking place as we wait, knowing that the Lord is coming. On the positive side, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Truth point number five is the one that I hope you walk out of here with more than anything else. Truth point number five, knowing that our Lord and Savior may fulfill his promise to come again to receive us to himself any day 
should have a continuing sanctifying effect on the believer. That's how it should impact us. You say, why do I need to know this? Why is this important to me? Because if you understand that the Lord may return at any single time, it should, if you know Christ, if you have the Spirit of God within you and you're connected in any positive way, it should be causing you to want to be what He wants you to be when He comes. Let me ask it this way. If you knew without a doubt that Jesus would fulfill His promise to return tomorrow, what would you do today? If you knew that at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, the sky would break open and Jesus would come and the shout would take place and the horn would blow and the resurrections are taking place and the saints of God are going up to be with the Lord. If you knew that was going to happen at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, I want to know, what would you do today? Well, that's a good idea. Tell everyone. But I got a feeling that there's some things in our lives that might need to be exited. What do you think? In other words... What, what condition do you want the Lord to find you in when he comes? And is your heart and soul right now in that condition that if he were to come, you would say, bless God, I've been waiting, let's go. Or would you say, oh, I'm glad he's here, but whew, I'm embarrassed. You see, the coming of Christ, this idea of the rapture and him coming to receive us, it should have... A continuing, sanctifying effect. Because I believe that all true Christians would want to say, I want to be as conformed to his likeness as possible when he comes for us. And being conformed to his likeness, to his image, is the goal of the Christian life. But let me tell you, being conformed to his image is not automatic. Transformation is not automatic. Sanctification is not automatic. There needs to be some intentionality. So as we wrap up, believer, I want to ask you, how are you living? And I ask myself that same question. Pastor Mike, Mike Rose, how are you living? Are you striving to live a self-controlled life? Is the lifestyle that you pursue upright? Is it godly? Are you taking steps to train yourself to reject ungodliness? If so, then you're more than ready and looking forward to His coming. If not, then perhaps you are presently living as though He's not coming and you don't have anything to worry about. Because it's a long way off. i got to believe if we believed he would come tomorrow, there would be some major changes taking place today. I just want to say to you that the pastors and staff at TMC and many of the congregation here are available to help you take those intentional steps to grow, to mature, to change, to become more like Christ. And perhaps that first step for you is simply identifying your desire to grow. We have a next steps table out in the Mission Cafe. I stop there to say, Pastor Brett, I would like to get on a pathway of transformation. 
that might be your first step. I pray that you'll take it if it's needed. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, then your first step is to turn from sin, to turn from self, and to embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's done by faith in his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Whether you're a Christian looking for help to grow or whether you're a person who is not yet believing in Christ and you're wanting to explore what belief is, we're here for you. My contact information is on the screen. If you'll reach out, I'll reach back. And I believe that the Lord, when you're sincere about that, will always meet you at the point of your need. Father, I pray that you... uh, are taking these things that have been shared and using them the way you want them to be used. I pray that you would help each one of us to give more consideration to this idea of your return, that you have promised to return. And in Scripture, we see these two events of your return. May none of us, under the sound of my voice, find ourselves impacted by the day of the Lord. May we all be ready to be received by you in the air when you come to resurrect the dead in Christ and to receive the living in Christ to yourself. And may we each and every day allow the reality of that truth to impact the way that we live, the things that we do, what we give our lives to and for. Whatever we may need to do today with the things we've heard, may your spirit help us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.